Welcome to Banter Radio. I'm your host, Will Sherwin. I'm a psychotherapist, an early childhood social-emotional consultant, and I'm starting a new job working with teens at a drop-in shelter in the San Francisco Bay Area. I've been studying narrative therapy for about four years, and I set up this show to keep learning. I want to have conversations with people worldwide who are involved with narrative therapy and social justice work. And I wanted to share those conversations with others. For this first episode, I sat down with my friend, colleague, and mentor, and narrative buddy, Julia Wallace. Julia is a psychotherapist in private practice in San Francisco, and we talked about some of the quotes that I've collected over these last four years. So I thought I would share with you some quotes that I found particularly influential in our work in narrative therapy and see what you think. And then we have a conversation okay. about them. That sounds fun. The first quote is um, from when I was studying in the MFT licensing exam and they were giving a summary of narrative therapy and it said, people are profoundly influenced by the discourses around them. I think that's a very important idea and that it is central to narrative therapy. But um, it's not a fundamental, you still have to understand the fundamentals of narrative to even understand that sentence. Because if you believe in a metaphor system, say of the body for the psyche, and then you add to that people are profoundly influenced by the discourses around them, that's not narrative. Because if you believe that the psyche works as a body so that people could be wounded or scarred or emotionally crippled. And then you add to that that they're influenced by the discourses around them. That's not narrative. Um, If you understand that believing that the psyche is a body is in itself a discourse that's influencing you, then you can move beyond it and away from it. So that's one of the metaphor systems that I never use, or almost never. The idea of the psyche as a body discourse is one that I find very limiting to people. That's very interesting. When I was reading this, you know, they presented a lot of different theories, and a lot of them talked about, you know, uh, the cause of uh, mental illnesses, people's dysfunctional thoughts, or maladjusted behaviors, or, you know, the structures they're involved with in their family. And what I liked about this was there is some humility. It's not saying that the root cause of people's problems are the stories they tell. Mm-mm. It's not saying that. It's saying that they're profoundly influenced. It's not even saying that it's the only influence, but they're profoundly inscru- influenced by the discourses around them. So it's contextual. It's looking at what's around the person, not only looking at what's inside of them. And I think that is very important to me, um, is understanding people. I think we're highly influenced by what's around us. Your behavior at Burning Man is going to be different than your behavior at a corporate job, which is going to be different than your behavior and what you think about yourself if you're in prison. Um, And the very same person in all of those three different environments is going to have available to them different behaviors, different ideas about themselves, different identities. Memories from their past will be different 
You're going to stack up the moments of your life, choosing very different moments and creating very different stacks in each of those contexts. And the role of the therapist is helping people recognize what they prefer, what they intend, and how that, what that means about their identity. Not necessarily what they prefer, what they intend, and how to get it. Sometimes I work with people about how to get things, and I find that if I'm, if I'm less effective with someone, it's because I'm working with them for how to get the things they want, and I'm not working with them for how to understand that what they want says something about who they are. If I'm working with someone who wants to say date and they're really blocked around dating, if I get too caught up in, well, have you tried OkCupid or Match.com? Have you gone to this event at that bookstore? What about this bar? That's less helpful to them. If I stay with, what does it mean to you that despite watching your parents' unhappy marriage that they stayed in, that you are still saying you want a date and that, quote, you want someone who cares about you and about whom you can care, right? That that was their sort of idea. What does it say about you that you believe that people can care about each other, right? How did you learn that? What's the history of this concept for you? That's going to do more for the person than um, strategizing dating. The next quote I had, a few, I have a few from by Kenneth Gergens, professor of psychology, has written some books about postmodernism. He wrote, the postmodern argument is not against the various schools of therapy, only against their posture of authoritative truth. Mm, I think some of the postmodern argument is against various schools of therapy. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe, maybe the, not the argument, maybe some of the postmodern thinkers. Um, I mean, how can you... Not find yourself a little bit against, um, uh, I find myself against certain schools of thought. I find them really annoying and terrible. Um, I really don't like hearing how someone doesn't have a core self. I think that's a ridiculous, mean statement to make about people. And when I hear therapists talking that way, I feel revulsion and sadness. And I don't even know how to enter that conversation because to me it just seems, um, using their ideas of posture of authoritative truth, to be definitely taking a posture of authoritative truth about other people and one in which you are using terribly mean insults that one cannot even answer because what are you going to do be like i do so have a core self (laughs) (laughs) i don't even understand how to how to deal with that i wonder if there's you know if some therapies would say something like you know i like to think of people as having a core and um, it's important to have a core if that can be like evocative people, but they don't hold it as like a, a truth about the way things are. Still, I think just the language shapes how you see things, even if you're not holding it literally as truth. Let's just define modernist psychology. So uh, off the top of my head, I would say modernist psychology uses a grand narrative. So it says all people, despite the differences of time, culture, gender, periods of history, you know, um, have the same developmental model and that human nature can be described within certain metaphors, which they then turn into, um, realities or truths, which is they, they take something that used to be a metaphor and then they use it like it's actual and real ego, super ego, id. Have you ever seen an ego? I have never seen an ego. I've seen an ibis, never an ego. Uh, and that, 
that use then of this very determined way of being normalizes some people and makes other people abnormal. It creates good and bad. It creates standards to which you must strive. And the striving is usually endless. Next quotation is also from Kenneth Gergen. Therapy tends to privilege the individual rather than the set of relationships in which that individual lives. Yeah, and we see this with how um, individual therapy has been found to promote divorce. Um, individual therapy tends to make it about your fear of success rather than the recession. Uh, individual therapy uh, that uses the idea of individualness is uh, going to promote separation from family members instead of understanding um, or valuing the various ways that relationship has created identity and builds connections. And this quote was really influential for me when I work in early childhood centers because before, if I, you know, I was privileging the individual, I might see an individual kid being aggressive and think, how do we help this kid with his aggression? How do we teach them civic skills to help with aggression? And, you know, maybe that could give me some... Um, some influence. But when I started to look at the set of relationships in which that individual lives, their relationship with the teacher, the teacher's relationship with the parent, parent's relationship with the kids, the kid's relationship with the other kids in the class, I started to see a lot more possibilities. And when I started to work with a set of relationships in which the kid lives, um, I saw better outcomes in the kid. So if we did things where you know, the teacher could give the parent a certificate of being a super friend uh, you know, the kid was a super friend that day. Um, they kind of lit up. And when those relationships got stronger, the kid kind of developed. I think that's really an interesting uh, observation you made. And, and one that has its ties, not, not just to narrative, but really to family therapy, um, which exploded the idea of psychoanalysis, which was so individual. What example would you have, Will, of, of where that changed your work, like a specific kid, a specific story? Well, the, the story I use a lot, and I wrote an article about it in the International Journal of Narrative Therapy, um, was a kid who would wake up from nap time and become really aggressive, wouldn't talk, and the teachers were trying to redirect him to things, and um, he had been suspended and looked like he was going to get expelled if we didn't work out something. So I talked, we had a meeting with the teachers and the parents and the administrators and myself, and the teachers were saying we just couldn't. We just can't calm him down. And so I asked, you know, is there anything you found that calmed him down? Even if they're telling me the story that we can never calm him down, that's the story. So I'm going to ask about exceptions to that. I said, well, when he calls his mom, um, he'll calm down, but it's interrupting her at work. So I asked if they could record the mom's voice and then play it for the kid. And I was thinking about that in terms of, um, you know, connecting the kid with his mom's presence and that presence, um, can be felt more through a voice than the teacher's just reminding the kid, you know, your mom's going to be upset or your mom's loves you. But if they could feel her presence through his voice, would that help him feel this set of relationships in which he lives? You know, he can feel the teachers, but can he feel the presence of his mom and his grandmother um, through using technology and using her voice? And he was fine within a week. Uh, he just played the message over and over again in his cubby whenever he was upset. And um, he had one difficult day, I was told, because the teacher accidentally dropped the recorder in the toilet. Oh. And it took a day for it to dry out. Oh. That 
is a, such a great story. And let's just analyze that story a little bit for what becomes available if we're using ideas around development and object constancy and what becomes available mm -hmm. for using ideas about relationship. You know, I think if I was using ideas from development and object constancy, you know, he's learning to uh, express his emotions and, you know, the next step would be for him to use his words and so let's positively reinforce him whenever he starts to vocalize something. Um, you know, we could give sticker charts um, and, you know, he's learning to be more independent and so the longer he is away from his mom without being aggressive, we can reward him. You know, I think teachers and I were, might have been even poking around at those kind of initiatives, but we weren't seeing, um, we weren't seeing a lot of possibilities with that. And just bringing the presence of his mom seemed to help. And just notice that all of those ideas around development and then reward systems are, one, a lot of work. They make everybody tired. Like, I just got tired listening to that. I'm like, oh, we're going to have to strive. We're going to have to create a sticker chart. Oh, you know, all of this stuff that makes me feel sad. But when I hear the story and it's placed in the idea of relationship and how evocative it is to hear someone's voice, I think about how much I wish I had a tape recording of my late mother's voice. Um, and I was really moved by that in that cathartic way that Michael White talked about. I heard that story and it moved me. It changed me in the way I'm thinking because I miss my mom, you know, and I want to be with a child in the reality of our lives that we miss our moms. I don't want to be the person who knows the child's development and that he better start expressing, you know, verbally. And so therefore we're going to strive, strive, strive with a, car a chart. Mm -hmm. And I think when we're all in that awareness that relationship matters to us and comfort matters and figuring out ways to honor relationship matters, I think we all become kinder to each other. And now this is not the way narrative therapy is talked about by Michael White, and it is by David Epstein. He'll talk in this way. But I think it's important that with each iteration of narrative that we can include whatever discourses are available to us that feel in line with narrative. And for me, that is to talk about um, in a sort of Buddhisty way or a spiritual way, not taking a position of authority to me means honoring what in some spiritual groups they talk about as oneness. And to me, I feel a oneness with that kid when I think about missing my mom's voice. by Foucault, where there is power, there is resistance. And that's a very important idea. Otherwise, we start talking about people as um, trodden victims with no um, abilities. And I think that in trauma work, that's especially important to, to remember that um, even if there's power over in the story that we're hearing from someone, that our person who's telling the story um, resisted that. It, you know, she or he resisted in ways that are um, multiple and intentional. And those ways may not be obvious, but they are there. 
Uh, and that's really important. So, um, you know, I was swimming last week, uh, but a, a country area where uh, it had some racial diversity, but not a lot, but it had pretty much nil on the gender diversity. Uh, people who were um, looking like women were dressing in a very particularly female way, and people who were looking like men were dressing in a very particular male way. And as I was swimming laps by the buoys, this teenage boy and his friend got to a buoy, and um, he was such a fabulous sissy boy, and uh, he was trying to climb on the buoy, or he's trying to dunk the buoy. I didn't know it. I was like, oh, are you trying to dunk that buoy? And I was just talking to him because I recognized um, a fellow queer person, and I'm not recognizable. I don't, I don't, I'm not someone he would look at and know I was queer, and I just wanted to be in some way super friendly, and he said, no, I'm trying to climb on top of it, and he had perfect hair. And he hadn't gotten it wet, even swimming out to the buoy. And I said, now, how did you manage to have such, you know, a perfect hairstyle that hasn't gotten wet? And he immediately bloomed in a very drag queeny way and was like, it takes incredible skill. And I saw that as resistance. Um, undoubtedly, that person is not getting uh, completely positive responses in his life. And yet he still kept his hair, you know, and he could respond to me in a way that um, he could recognize me as friendly to him. He could recognize my cues as saying, I see the resistance you're giving to the gender norms and I'm friendly. Um, and he could take that and work with that. And to me, that meant that he, in his resistance to power over him, he's doing all sorts of things. So that's a sort of a, a small example Um but when we're working with someone who was abused as a child, sometimes children showed their resistance by running away, sometimes by uh, dissociation, by you know being able to leave the room is a really great form of resistance, sometimes by being very silent and allowing something to happen so that they wouldn't be killed in a rape situation. And that shows resistance of valuing of their own lives. Sometimes it was by saying no, whether it worked or not. Um, there's always intentions and there's always resistance. What Foucault also meant was that large group oppressions produce resistance, which produce identity. And he, you know, argued that around queerness. I really love the emphasis on resistance. And what I've read about the narrative therapy approaches to trauma, we talked about often the story that's emphasized in therapy is what happened to the person and the effects that's happened to the person from some traumatic situation or for some oppressive power. What's often not brought out is how the person responded to this oppressive power or this traumatic situation. And that um, it can be really helpful to draw out the ways people have responded. Um, even if it's, you know, I was became quiet and I was very observant for a long time or however it is, there's always a response. Mm -hmm. This next quote is by John Winslade and Lorraine Hedke in their book, The Archaeology of Hope. The narrative approach is characterized by an unshakable belief in the incomplete nature of all oppressions. And again, that's similar to the Foucault idea that um, oppression is never complete. We never have someone who is completely oppressed. Everyone who is alive has intentions for their lives, and they are their intentions. They are not the intentions um, that oppression would tell them they have to have. 
And you know, when I hear a story about a kid, like he's he just never listens. Um, you know, he's spoiled. Um, the classroom is completely out of control. That's a story of uh, a, a complete oppression, basically a complete oppression of a problem. And you know, this quote reminds me that there's always cracks in oppressive power and a problem. And those cracks can be good places to look at to see uh, new directions or new possibilities. It's it can be hard to to try to meet an oppressive power, you know, head on or at the places where it's most strong. But if you can find the cracks that are always there, that can give opportunities and um, places to focus your energy. Mm-hmm. All of us are weirdly abled. So I heard Stephen Madigan say this, and I know David Epson's used this, used this term, weirdly abled. I'm wondering what, if it evokes anything for you. I like that because it speaks to how we're all uh, have skills and intentions, but some of these skills can feel weird and uh, not necessarily within fitting an idea about normal skill development. What, but what does the quote mean to you? Well, since I work in community mental health and agencies, sometimes I'm presented with you know the skills that therapists should have, you know the core competencies. And it's like, you know, ability to set boundaries, good self-care, to know your own limits, um, to be able to articulate what you do theoretically. Um, and it's just kind of exhausting whenever I see these lists. And it's not so inspiring. And, um, you know, I can only measure myself against them and see if I'm able in those abilities or not. But thinking that we're all weirdly abled and whatever list somebody comes up with, there might be these weird abilities that some of us have that um, aren't going to make it on the list that could be profoundly helpful and could um, help people in ways that the list makers haven't thought of. (laughs) You know, I feel like I have an ability to curate things and, you know, I'll read an article and find a way to simplify it for teachers so they don't have to read the whole 20 page article and only take the good parts and the gems. And this has been really helpful to me. Um, but it's not on a list of what therapists are supposed to be able to do, and yet it's been such a helpful thing as a therapist in your work. Yeah, and focusing on the weird abilities that I have is uplifting, and it's not about measuring myself against some core competencies that a list maker came up with. Absolutely. I mean, it, whenever... I don't, I think I don't do that anymore. I just don't even look at lists of like things I'm supposed to be and take that in because I know it's going to make me feel lacking. I mean, that's, that's just what happens. Um, I notice that you as a therapist, you're also very, uh, you shine in gentleness, you know, you've talked about, um, and that's not my, I don't shine in gentleness. Um, I think the effect of my work is profoundly gentle because I, I don't invite shame or blame into the room. I really don't. Um, but I am jokey and blunt and straightforward. Um, and, um, and this is not gentle, but yet that's helpful in the work that I do. And I think it, it does lead to gentleness. I'm, I'm modeling it in a non-gentle way. Um, but I wouldn't, I would say that the two of us have very different weird abilities. And, and so if we were to have to write a list of like, what, 
what the core things a therapist should have, it would be a very odd moment for us, wouldn't it? You know, would, would I write down gentleness and then feel not good enough? Would, would you write down um, ability to hold boundaries with direct communication and then feel like a failure? Like, would we honor each other but feel worse about ourselves by creating these lists? And that's what normativism does. And that's the problem with modern psychology is its very idea is that there is norm. Yeah. And, you know, these lists, I mean, it can create effect on people's lives where they're always trying to optimize and measure up to whatever lists, um, you know, some expert has said are essential and bad things are going to happen if you don't measure up to these lists. And a quote like this, a therapist taking a stand that all of us are weirdly eviled and asking about the weird abilities and putting them into rich storylines. You know, what, what does that create for a person that giving them a list of core competencies and then telling them the skills they're going to need to develop and the technologies they're going to need to operate on themselves in order to get there, um, you know, just doesn't, doesn't get at. And, and that doesn't mean that you can't still do some of that like skill development, but not in, unless that's the skill the person wants to develop and, and not unless it's not out of self-hatred. So, um, I also think that when we talk about uh, weirdly abled, implicit in this idea is that we're not using um, failure ideas for identity. So, for instance, my client this morning uh, said, well, I'm doing all these things that are good, you know, and she's sober five months and she's doing really well in all these ways. And she said, but I haven't applied for any work for the last week and a half. She, she was let go from a job that was not a fabulous job a few weeks ago. And she, I said, well, what do you think is the obstacle? And she said, you always ask that, but I really think that it's just that I'm lazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, okay, but, but you know, if, if I go with that, I can't, I don't have a follow-up question. I just have to say, well, you're lazy. Um, so why don't we just go with what's the idea that stops you? She's like, well, I have a list of people I'm supposed to contact. I, you know, I redid my resume. I got a new blazer. You know, I just don't do it. And I said, well, what's the idea that stops you from doing it? And she again went to lazy. And then I was like, but really, what's the idea? That? And she said, well, I just don't want another stupid job. I don't want to do things I don't care about. And I said, oh, so the obstacle that's stopping you is an honor of the fact that you want to do something you're passionate about. And from there, the conversation went really well. And we got to, she knows three people in the field that she wants to work in. She's willing to call those people. And that she might volunteer in that field to just build more connections. And immediately we had, you know, a very doable, actionable plan that moved her towards, and and she was able to say, things that she was able to do at the end, like, yeah, I would be able to do that job because I really am a good public speaker. So now we get into the ways that she's abled and away from this idea of lazy. And we were able to talk about how we'd already discovered that she works best when she's part of a group. She works hardest and best when she's part of a group that's doing something she cares about. So that for her career, she might want to look at agencies and, you know, people who are doing the work she wants to do. This next one's a long one. It comes from uh, Michael White's video on uh, trauma, three-part series on Vimeo. A lot of people ask me, well, what, what is the theory of change in, uh, in, in, uh, from this narrative perspective? Um, and um, I guess there are uh, uh, numerous responses to that question, but, but one of my responses would be 
that the rich development of a supporting storyline provides a foundation for people to actually um, address their problems and predicaments of their life. It, it, it uh, makes it possible for them to engage in actions that are healing or potentially healing of, of their, um, uh, you know, uh, them in, in response to the uh, traumas of their past. And um, so um, it's this um, rich, rich story development that provides that foundation. People become aware of some actions that they could take that would be more in harmony with what they're learning about. Uh, what's important to them, about what they give value to, you know, and about what they intend for their life. And so um, it's through this rich story development that some of these other conclusions about life um, um, become more visible and um, um, become more influential in the shaping of life. And you'll see that in these narrative conversations there's quite a focus on Standing in context in which people are able to uh, um, give voice to um, uh, what it is that they do give value to that's been continuous through their life, um, um, that's represented in a range of responses to their predicaments, and, um, and, and what it is that people intend for their lives, you know, and um, that's reflected by some of these responses. and. Um, it's the rich development of these uh, conclusions um, about one's intentions and about what one gives value to that provides a wonderful foundation for people to proceed with their life. You know, that, that suddenly, as I said, people become aware of a whole range of options that, for taking action that would be in harmony with what they give value to and with what they intend for their life. thinking about this idea that one of the main ways we can help people is help with the rich development of subordinate storylines. And I'm reading Michael White's book, Narratives of Therapist Lives. Well, I think about when I'm supervising other therapists and maybe stressed about something. You know, one thing I could do is I could validate how hard it is, the work they're doing, I could remind them to take care of themselves. I could ask them about what did you take care of themselves and remind them to do that. Um, I can point out that it sounds like they're doing a good job and that other people around them are being difficult or resistant or something like that. But this thing about helping them with a, develop a rich storyline of why they're a therapist, how they came to value certain things, you know, what, what were the turning points in their unique counseling career, that's another way to go about it and to bring into the conversations that I've been, I've been thinking about and thinking about in my own life, how to, how to put why I'm a therapist into a more of a story and what the mm. turning points were. And it opens up a lot. But what would you say if someone said, well, stories are fine, but some people have, uh, you know, brain dysfunctions and there's their actual uh, neurons are, are, are not as functional. How would a story help with that? I mean, that's just another um, 
epistemology in a way like we, you can talk neurons and then you can also talk about how you can measure in neurons the effects of stories you know you can look at people's brains when they are telling stories where they uh, really hear so for instance there have been studies that show that some people are able to be moved by what they read or what they're listening to in a way that mimics what is ex being experienced in the story such that they are experiencing the feelings in the story so if it's describing certain things and those parts of their brains are, are lighting up and that uh, so you know we could we could go into that um, worldview of neurons and talk about how stories are incredibly effective and that when when people are richly telling stories that they are moved in ways that you can measure in their brain activity and in the in their neurons we you know there are so many different ways to look at human experience. We could look at it from, you know, whether or not their, um, their neurotransmitters are responding, which are mostly in the gut. We could talk about it in terms of their chi. We could talk about it in terms of spirituality. We could talk about it in terms of stories. You could use an attachment idea. But all of these things make some things possible and other things not possible. Every single epistemology, every single worldview, every single uh, metaphor system will make some things possible and other things not possible. So you want to be careful which ones you use when and how. So why have you chosen to give value to stories, uh, narratives, when there's all these things available to us? I see so many limitations in the in in the other ones. Um, if anything makes me feel limited or striving, I I don't want it. If I need to process my um, memories in order to become healthy, that's not um, a one I want to do. I don't want more on my to do list. I really really don't want more on my to do list. But there are a lot of authoritative experts out there who would say, you know, if you don't look at things in this way, bad things will happen. There'll be limitations on your lives. Um, how would you respond to that? Yeah, they used to say if you studied and you were female that you're, you would become infertile and you'd grow hair on your face. I mean, there have always been authoritative experts who tell you, if you, you know, you need attachment to be a certain way or you need, uh, you know, to build your core self or you, you know, need to work with, be, be strengths-based. I mean, strengths-based is sort of the least offensive of all the terminologies out there, but it still implies that there's weakness that we could uh, be, you know, concerned about. And I'm not saying that it doesn't, there isn't really good work that doesn't happen by people who use metaphors that I don't like. But I am saying that either they're tweaking those metaphors, and you do see that. The best therapists I know, even if they're working in modernist things, they are so not taking positions of authority over. They just aren't. They are really getting that we're all in the same soup. Um, or there are just limitations to what happens. And I'm sure there are limitations in, in what I'm doing too, but I'm trying to stay really closely to what people intend for their lives and not accepting normative ideas that tell them they're um, always already fucked up. I think when I was getting involved in narrative therapy, there was this question, you know, is this a good path? You know, there's these double-blind research studies saying this other path is, you know, effective. And I, I kind of thought, 
you know, there's a lot of people doing these other paths. And I'm really curious about what's going to happen if I follow what, um, what's uplifting for me or what seems to shine for me. And as a kind of a risk, you know, let's see what happens if I go on this adventure of trying to put these ideas that inspire me um, into practice and see if bad things happen <laughs> or if things that I prefer happen. And it felt very much like a risk to go outside of what has been put into double blind research studies. And I've been happy with it. One thing that I've seen is I've had clients come to me who say, I know I'm supposed to get CBT, but I really find that annoying in this way or that way or scary or et cetera. And they won't, they're not going to do CBT or they're not going to do exposure therapy. And so they come work with me and I can think of two examples. One of whom he really got better working narratively uh, and is very pleased to work narratively because he doesn't feel like he has to um, do something that to him felt uncomfortable with CBT and, and dumb to him. I had somebody else who got better with narrative, but then we stopped seeing each other. She, uh, I, I was out on maternity leave and panic came back and she didn't want to use, she had used medications and she wouldn't use medications because she was planning on getting pregnant. And she went and did CBT and exposure therapy for the first time, which whereas before she'd been very clear, she would not do that. She was scared of it and she wasn't going to do it. Um, and we had gotten rid of panic, but when it came back and she couldn't use meds, she went and did it and it worked really well for her. You know, so I'm not saying these things don't work for some people, maybe even for many people, but having that variety out there of choice is useful. And there's different things that, different conclusions about herself that she makes from these therapies. So in the therapy that we did, she had a lot of conclusions about self that were useful in a variety of places. In the therapy that she did that was CBT and exposure, it got rid of panic. In the first David Epstein workshop I, did, I went to at, at uh, Berkeley, he said that, I can't remember the exact wording, he said something like, the aim of his work is restoring the dignity and honor of young people and their families. And it stuck out to me right away because I never heard anyone talk about dignity and honor in my grad school program. We could talk about self-esteem, about health, about wholeness, um, but nothing about dignity and honor. And he also said, I was looking at my notes, that shame and dignity and dishonor dissolve in rich stories. I'm going to speak to how shame dissolves in rich stories. Um, shame tells people that they are already and always have been not good enough. That's different from regret. Uh, regret is not shame. And so regret, in by my definitions here, regret tells people you did something that you don't want to stand by. That's not how you want to do it. So I was working with someone, um, it was our first session, and she was in crisis, uh, and she was living with her family as a as a an adult uh, in her late twenties, and she was telling me how much she loved her parents and how great they were, and how ashamed she was, and she couldn't get rid of the shame because uh, from eighteen to about twenty four, she had been a heroin addict and she had done terrible things, stealing from them, things like that, and that she couldn't get over it. You know, she was now living with them, and she was sick. She had a chronic illness. Um, and she was working and she was trying in her life and she was 
all these things, but she couldn't get over the shame and she felt ashamed of her shame. And she knew from modern psychology that she needed to not be ashamed. And I said, oh, it's interesting. Um, I wonder uh, if this shame isn't, um, I wonder if it's actually shame. I wonder if, if we could poke at it a little bit, you know, sounds like, um, you don't like what you did when you were 18 to 24 to your parents. She's like, no, I really, really don't. And I was like, that's because something else is what you prefer, right? What, what do you like? believe in being nice to them and all these other things? We started going through all the things that she really cared about and honor and uh, truth and, and being reliable and all these things. And then I was able to ask, so it seems like what you did, you don't stand by, you don't like it. And she's like, right, and that's why I can't get over being ashamed. And I was like, well, what if it was regret? And this is a reframe, it's not really narrative, but it's sort of a David Ebsten narrative style, you know, to just ask, could that could that change this? You know, what if by saying you are never okay with this and you're never going to be okay with how you treated them, you're standing by what you really care about and what you give honor to and what what your preferred way you know, what you, what you give value to. And then it changed everything. And then she was able to say, absolutely. I really give value to this and this. And her parents have forgiven her. They're, they love her and she gets along. I mean, they, she sent me little artwork that her dad had made. She, she's really, they're a threesome, she and her parents. They love each other and they're good to each other. They're not mad at her. They're so grateful that she's not a heroin addict anymore. Um, and that changed everything. And then after that, she just started writing me emails. We didn't even have to have sessions where she just told me about all the things that were happening in her life and th the improvements that she was having and how she was honoring what she gives value to in the choices that she was making. At the risk of speaking in generalities, um, do you notice certain things become available to people when shame and dignity and dishonor have dissolved and some rich storylines that you've helped um, develop with people like what what does it look like when when some of this shame and dignity and dishonor have been dissolved absolutely so when I was working with someone who had been um, date raped as a teenager uh, the she started with a, a story of I must have been date raped because I had learned helplessness because I grew up in an abusive family and therefore I am and here's the modern idea I am you know flawed inside and every action that has happened in my life that I don't like is actually revealing how I am always already fucked up. The always already fucked up that is such a part of modernism that you have a core self, it's it's set by a certain age, then everything that happens sort of reveals that um, you know you 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 accepted this um, abuse because you had you had been harmed such that you are now someone who accepts abuse. So instead, we looked really detailed into the stories of what she had been doing the weeks before the, the, the rape, the months before. And we got this rich, detailed story of how she was working with a feminist zine in the punk rock community and how she was really caring about that and that um, her boyfriend had tried to rape her, but her friend had gotten her away and that that had gone against this new and very important idea to her that she was feminist and that she was going to protect herself so that she actually put herself back in the situation with him where she was alone with him in a room 
um, because she wanted to say no because the other time she hadn't gotten to say no, the friend had saved her. And so she did. She got in that situation, and she said no, and she said it clearly, and she said it repeatedly, and it wasn't enough, and he raped her. And as we got all that story, shame and dignity and the dishonor dissolved because she realized I was trying. I was foolish. I was 15 or 16, and I didn't know that I couldn't win in that situation. I was just ignorant, but I was trying to stand up for what I believe in and what I still believe in. And so it was a strong identity formation. And the details of who and what she was doing is what dissolved the shame and dignity and dishonor. Um, I think pathologization always uses a broad brush. It never is looking at detail. If, if there's pathologization going on, it's assumption and knowingness and not detail. listening to the first episode of Banter Radio. For more information on Julia Wallace, you can check out her website at juliawallace.com. And to find more about Banter, go to our website, sfbantr.org, sfbanter.org. In the future, uh, I'd really like to have conversations with other people involved with narrative and postmodern therapies. I'm going to try to figure out the technology for recording people over the phone, with their permission, of course. And um, I think it's a good project, so I'm willing to put in the time to learn the skills. The music from this show comes from DJ Lang, B.O. Crew, and N.I.G.I.D., who both put up tracks that I could use from the Creative Commons license. And lastly, I wanted to tell you a show that both I liked, along with Julia and Jill Friedman and Gene Combs. We all liked the show Treme, which HBO put out, had, I think, five seasons. And great characters. It takes place in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, with a special emphasis on the culture of the musicians. So it's highly recommended. Check it out. I'm going to close with a New Orleans tune also put up by Creative Commons license by a band called Calling Sister Midnight. The track's called Cold Wood Stove. One, two, three, four. <laughs> <laughs> I'm biding my time for a while. See you smile when you come on back to me. Why don't you stay warm by my woods with me? But never you mind for a while. Cause you won't want that mind when you come running back to me. Be keeping it warm by my woods with me. Babe, when your breezes blow, honey, I miss you so I just can't believe what you see But darling, you gotta know you've been a so and so just 
Just keep up and come back to me Laugh at my time for a while But I will see that smile when you come on back to me Be waiting a little long Time I must you'll see I've got the cold, cold 